You are listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. And how the hell did the Russians find us? What are you asking me for? Because you're communications. You're in charge of covering our tracks. I'm sorry. Are you still not afford to make mistakes like that now, Benji? You're not a technician anymore. You're a field agent. And you're just an analyst. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast as part of the Tokyo Bead Podcast Network. We are wrapping up our look at the early Mission Impossible films with uh, 2011's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, directed by Brad Bird. Um, I'm at Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. You are a passionate creature. We are all passionate creatures. And Alex? You better answer the phone. Mother Russia is calling. It might be Putin, but it feels like Joseph Stalin. How do you stop a bomb from falling? Ethan Hunt and the gang be Ghost protocol Uh. <laughs> Very good. Yes. So. Science is too tight. Too tight. Right. And it's, um, anyhow, yeah, this full film, you know, just like the gap from uh, Mission Impossible 2 and 3, there was a big one between 3 and 4. This came out in uh, Mission Impossible 3 was in 2006. This came out, you know, five years later in 2011. So it's just one of those things where Tom Cruise is busy with a lot of other movies. He has to approve the script. They sort of go through different people. And um, it, it's noting one of the uh, the people that worked in the screenplay was uh, Christopher McQuarrie, who would later end up directing uh, Mission Impossible's uh, five through, I guess it's going to be eight by the time that comes out. So. Yeah, they, they, they pulled a Twilight. They did a different director for every movie. Then they're like, oh, fuck it. We'll finish it with one director. <laughs> This, yeah, yeah. This film kind of marks an inflection point, and it's it's two things are happening at once. Is is first, it, the, I remember the sense being when this movie came out. Okay, well, I guess this franchise just isn't going to stop, and it's been they've been releasing new sequels pretty reliably since Ghost Protocol. So yes, the franchise is just going to keep on going. But two. I remember because this is one of the producers on this is J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot even gets their logo thrown up at the beginning. And this is also the point where people sort of seemed, oh, yeah, J.J. Abrams, he's the guy that you get to bring back franchises when you can't get The Rock to bring back a franchise. <laughs> and and it's kind of true. Like that that's like seems to be half of J.J. Abrams output now is bringing back old franchises. At least. I mean, Abrams, you know, directed uh, Mission Impossible 3 as well. So but right. True, that, true. That, that he's still. Uh, uh, producing this and and stuff right that is he, he's jj abrams is interesting i haven't seen a lot of his tv stuff but like so much of the films it's like okay so you can uh, mimic the style of other people but who's the real jj abrams what yeah if he could do something that wasn't you know uh, a revival of a beloved um you know movie or film uh, tv series i what think would he's he do? like I think he's kind of partially responsible for like the 2016 nostalgia wave of like Stranger Things and like the It sequels and yeah, stuff like that coming to pass. I think so. Is Super 8 like the last like f- presumably for himself project J.J. Abrams has done? I, I think what he direct did he even direct that one? I don't even know. Um, yeah, it could be. Let's see. Yeah, because after that, he's just done uh, not just. I mean, these are all big movies. He did Star Trek Into Darkness, the second out of the Star Trek kind of reboots, uh, and then uh, Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker. But he has not directed a movie since 2019. Uh-huh. I mean, of course, we had we had the pandemic start in 2020, but still, yes. Yeah the 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 force just wore him out. You you think like he in all honesty with with all the money he's made for so many studios he is due for a blank check to make some wild hair passion project and I hope he I gets would, that chance. 
Yeah, I mean, he's been producing stuff, certainly. Um, but right, I agree. I think a big, a big check passion project, or you know, I mean, that there's that podcast, Blank Check, right? Yeah, to see J.J. Abrams with a blank check to do his own original thing, uh, he's he's more than earned it, and that'd be really cool to see. Um, but I mean, yeah, the, the director of this is kind of what drew my attention to it at first is Brad Bird, who yes. comes from the world of animation, among other things, he directed. Uh, episodes from the first season of the simpsons he he did a um a short yep. that oh go on well the iron giant incredibles uh. yeah he did a, a short that got attention that that became a one season series called family dog the fa- the fact that Brad yeah, I mean, Bird is directing this, and I think he does overall. I'll talk more about specifics later. I think overall he does a really good job doing handling live action direction. But the fact that he's directing this movie just really speaks to the fact that America does not know what the hell to do with animation. <laughs> so like, yes. like th- think of how many mind blowing animation projects Brad Bird could have done with the resources that were put into making this one live action movie. I know it's really telling too. It's like, it, it's, it's telling because like the iron giant, I feel like to this day is still kind of a cult movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's got like, you know, it's very visible, but like, I feel like it's like amongst like movie people and animation buffs, you know, and it, like it should be a big up there movie, but it's still again, kind of a cult film. Well, and it's pretty insulting how the character of the Iron Giant was used in Ready Player One as oh, kind yeah. of a, an attack mm, weapon yeah. in a big scene. But um, but yeah, I think, you know, with... And Brad Bird's animation stuff tended to be stuff that was always a bit outside the box. It wasn't about a group of animals trying to find their family. Yeah, exactly. Even, you know, The Incredibles, I mean, that was like before all the superhero movie stuff really happened in earnest. And that was a big hit. And Ratatouille in particular, I quite like out of his um, Pixar stuff. Yeah. Although this is like, it's going to like, it's hard for me to say this without sounding kind of sinister. But again, it feels like another case of like, you don't want the artist. You want someone who can work with visual effects. You want a director Mm -hmm. who's talented, but we don't want an artiste. Um, We got this Brad Bird guy. And again, you know, he can handle money. He can handle projects. He can handle you know, you can keep the uh, plate spinning and that that's the kind of director that you want because it's like you want someone competent and who knows their way around, can handle expensive big equipment, but you don't want, you know, somebody who's going to go off the deep end. So you get, hey, Brad Bird, perfect guy for the new Mission Impossible movie. Tom Cruise approves. And to, to Brad Bird's credit, um, more so than any other film in this series, I think Ghost Protocol has the best sense of place within all of its scenes and set pieces. Uh, like B- Brad Bird really understands how to use the persistence of vision and to give you a sense of the geography of all the scenes and how they connect to each other. Uh, to the point where even in that one of the highlight of the film for me was the chase scene, the street chase during the dust storm in uh, Dubai. And despite the fact that neither Ethan Hunt nor the person he's chasing can see where the hell they are, there's still a phenomenal sense of space in that scene. Like they are moving through a volume when they interact with a building, a car, whatever, as it suddenly hoves into view. It feels so natural that that is the moment when it hoves into view and they have to deal with it. On the other hand, um, where Brad Bird's back and animation sometimes becomes a liability there are a number of scenes both dramatic comedic and action scenes where clearly bad brad bird is trying to go for very precise timing but it is a precision in timing that is not really possible in live action and is only possible in animation and all, all of all of those those moments are full of beats that are all a half second too early or a half second too late are you talking like when um, Tom Cruise is like rappelling around the the, the Burj Khalifa building? Uh, that's one. There's also like the the hotel room fight between uh, the woman and the assassin. Oh yeah, that stuck out to me. I mean, should we go chronological or just do what we usually do? I just do what we normally do. Yeah. So there was a moment there in that fight because I was thinking about the fight choreography quite a bit, and there's some awkward scenes where you'll get your kind of like your wider shot and you get the, you know, profile of people wailing on each other. 
you get your close up of someone getting thumped with a vase or a you know table or whatever. But I remember there was these weird shots, and they were of Leia Seydoux specifically, of her from, like, the waist up, like, wielding a, a corkscrew, I think it was, right? And it was so awkward, and it really threw off the momentum of the fight choreography. Did it, Did either of you pick up on that? Like, it was just, like, yes. this really awkward cut, because it was working, and then it cuts, there's just a few really clumsy frame, framings, uh, frame devices, not framing devices, but these just really awkward uh, angles they were filming at, and it really threw off the momentum of the action choreography for me. As I, as I say, I think that is because in Brad Bird's conception of the scene, he's timing it as if in his head, as if it were animation, but human actors cannot move as precisely as animated figures. And that's where we get that weird, that weird lag and that weird gun jumping that, that infiltrates these scenes. Yeah, well, it's um, a disconnect between the two different mediums, you know? Like, I totally feel that. When you're filming live action, you have a very limited set time at each set to, to film everything, and it takes a long time to set up the camera and do all this stuff. And with animation, it's its own challenges, but because it's in a... Um, especially with the CG stuff, right? You're in a virtual environment. You can move the camera wherever you want. You can do things up to a certain frame. You can cut frames as, as people are moving and do exaggerated movements. You can control every fine-tuned little thing. And with live action, that's not the case. I mean, afterwards in computers, you can, you know, certainly refine things, but not to the level of, of animation. And um, I think that's that's a good point. And it, I mean, overall, something I like about this film is I think it has more of a sense of fun to it compared to Mission Impossible 3, which was felt more serious overall yeah and, there's um definitely a sense of humor here and they don't lean into it too much there's a few funny there's like some good lines and some good puns and stuff that i felt like worked pretty well and it feels like the movie's having more fun doing what it's doing and not as self-conscious as the last one yeah no, yeah but that goes too far like the mm. the techno fetishism in this movie is just absurd and and like like okay i'll get one when, when ethan goes to that busted ass russian phone booth and there's like a retinal scanner and a super high-tech computer inside that like <laughs> gives his mission okay i'll give you that despite the fact that i guess nobody's ever tried to rob that that phone booth or service that phone booth okay i'll give it to you but then later when there's like a high-tech wild wild west train car <laughs> that's like a mobile command center where every part of the train car moves and pops out to reveal new tech and then the part that just where i threw up my hands and just said god damn it movie the the chain mail suit so that you can use a robot magnet to levitate Tate someone through a server room that okay never mind the fact that that is impossible because magnets don't repel they attract there is nothing you do with that suit that you couldn't do by just having a person without a chainmail suit crawl through the server <laughs> yeah i forgot the significance of why he had to be all floaty um was it because it was hot there right? is no significance it's because it there's looks no cool and it allows for some bad comedy <laughs> when he bounces around right the other thing though i thought was funny the retinal scan on the train because that stood out to me too was a uh, pull every every five seconds was pull you had to avoid the pull because <laughs> and then when he does the retina scan i'm like oh i bet a pole's gonna come up and hit him or something or he's gonna have to like do it within seconds of a pole passing by, and it doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, the TV what did you think of the inclusion? Oh. oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, what did you think of uh, the inclusion of Jeremy Renner? I was going to say, yeah, I, it almost seems like they were grooming him to be like Tom Cruise Jr. And, I mean, it's mm. he's in this film, and he's in the next one, and then he's not in the series again. So, it... It, it's a strange choice. I think he feels like he's doing his own thing. He doesn't quite feel with with the team a lot. Uh, doesn't seem to gel with the, the the team as much. And like he's not the joke guy because you have Simon Pegg for that, who's kind of the engineer. And just as far as what he's he's doing, it seems like he's doing like the stunts Tom Cruise didn't want to do. Was sort of my 
Well, he's there. He's there to be the straight man because, like, his, his whole yeah. thing most of the time is rightly pointing out what you want to do is needlessly complicated and needlessly <laughs> dangerous. But this being an action movie, of course, the most complicated, dangerous uh, course of actions is always the correct one. Right. The, he has the unfortunate burden of getting stuck with all the fucking worst of the worst dialogue and has to ask all the dumb questions. Wait, so what's that for? Well, how are we going to do that? We only have five minutes. Yeah. It's like, ah, oh, poor yeah. guy. What's well, another another thing that, that this movie and, and again, you, you can kind of forgive it. But the longer this series goes on, the more glaring it is that in so many cases, nobody explains this plan until the last possible second after they've had hours to work out a plan. Right. Yeah. After the, you know, eight hour, you know, plane ride and yeah, the little pedicab trip to the airport. Um, the other thing that I thought that was funny, though, is that like the second dangers introduced he's like you know this fucking hand-to-hand combat extraordinaire and of course you're like within seconds you're like well clearly he's not just a fucking agent or a stooge for you know the government he's obviously got like you know he's been in the field he's bad training you know military training or something like that and then like they so, like yeah what are you gonna say well, to the to this film's credit I, I fully expected Jeremy Renner was going to be revealed to have like a whole bunch of secret skills. But to the mm-hmm. film's credit, I assumed it was because he was going to turn out to be the rogue double agent and secretly the bad guy. But no, he's one of the good guys. Yeah. They kept that consistent. That legitimately surprised me. But yeah, he's he seems a little out of place, but I think he does pretty good considering the circumstances. But it's just it is kind of funny, though, when they're like, it's like, OK, he's obviously, you know, an agent or a former agent or an ex-agent or a double agent or something like that. Then he finally reveals it's like, well, that's not the big needle drop moment we were expecting because we kind of saw it coming. Um, but uh, but yeah, the um, here here's the thing, right? Did either of you feel like this movie just had, like, like who is the villain of the movie? Is, is it Leia Seydoux? Is it Russian guy number three? It's like, I, I feel like this movie has, like, five villains. And by the end, it's like, wait, who who who's the bad guy again? Well, so, well I could tell who the bad guy is because the bad guy is that political theorist who wants to start World War III. I guess the, the only problem is this is one of those rare movies where I kind of wish the villain gave a big evil speech because other than like a news clip we see of him sort of speculating well you know Earth got better after the Permian extinction like <laughs> it's like come on like give, give me give me some like Yes, you said he's crazy, and that is definitely a, intentionally wanting to cause a mass extinction is definitely crazy and indefensible. But I would at least like to know why he thinks it's a good idea. It's that like I want to feel. I want to feel what because it's it's like it's a thought experiment that <laughs> he's doing, and and I just can't. Well, I, and you know what? The other thing that hurts is this movie is coming after over a decade of other action movies about rogue operators getting a hold of Russian nuclear weapons and then trying to use them to start World War Three. Yeah, exactly. I think um, it's very pat. Like I kept he, waiting for a twist. I kept waiting for. Well, clearly he doesn't want to cause a mass extinction because he died too. Yeah. Like I thought there was going to be something else. You know, like, like, like. Actually, you know what? I honestly thought at one point, if they wanted to be really like really twisty, he's counting on the Mission Impossible agents to disarm the missile while it's in the air so that he could have a salvage crew scoop it up out of the harbor. And now he owns a nuclear weapon. There you go. That's like that's that, what I was waiting for. Yeah, I was kind of waiting was, for that, too. But like uh, so you got Leia do. You've got news clip evil man. You've got tough Russian guy. Um You've got the India guy. Um, there's a there's, there's, there's a whole there's a very 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 wide cabal of of bad guy or bad of villain stuff. And then they beat the shit out of Leia Sidhu, kick her out a window, and they're like, "Oh, we needed her. She was an asset." But it doesn't really seem to hold things up by much. Yeah, I'm not sure what they need her for because her absence doesn't really hold them back. I, oh, and if, if I could say something about that. So the battle between Paula Patton as Agent Carter and, and Leah Sadu as Sabine Moreau, who's the assassin, 
and I know I've talked about this before, but I'm going to keep talking about it until until movies get better, <laughs> which is a fool's errand, I know. But <laughs> it's it's that you you set up this you set up this highly competent uh, female assassin, and you set up this highly competent woman agent, but you only set them up so that they can have a fight scene between the two because you don't dare show a woman and a man fighting on equal footing. Yeah, I know, right? And and I find that endlessly frustrating. Like I it it is a kind of it's a kind of soft sexism. Weather Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. That's a very good way to put it. It's kind of like when, um, it's like the when Tarantino's like, yeah, you know, like, Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah are kicking ass. It's like, no, I just think you think girls fighting is hot <laughs> and you're and you're trying to pass it off as like empowerment. But just, <laughs> let's just call it what it is. Um, just accept that it's a fetishy thing for you and we can all move on from this. You know, now that I think about it, I'm kind of shocked Tarantino has never made the ultimate women in prison movie. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, you're right. I know. I'm sure he's. Maybe, I'm sure he has toyed with the story. idea because it's like, it's got to be. I'm sure there's an undirected script or something lying around, with n words galore. Um, but um, but the funny thing was one thing I love though is that it starts with them infiltrating, you know, this this Russian uh, syndicate, and when he he puts on the the archer disguise. And um, him and Simon Pegg do the do the Russian thing, and they use that like mirror screen hologram thingy hallway oh, setup, God. and I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, it's cool, but it's also kind of silly. It's just that in all the time they took to do that, they could have just shot him with one of the trank darts they're shooting everyone else with, and then the guard would be incapacitated, and they would have all the time in the world to yeah. search that archive. That is true. Um, but uh, <laughs> I love like, that. I honestly think, think that's, that's just there for the joke where the giant Simon Pegg head is projected on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's funny, though, after he takes off the disguise, he's wearing a Bruce Springsteen shirt. Then the Kremlin explodes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you have an American rogue agent and exploding Kremlin and to add insult to injury he's rocking a Bruce Springsteen shirt. Okay, so in every one of these movies, Ethan Hunt goes rogue, and this movie has the record because he's gone rogue before the movie starts. <laughs> and this is something where, like, the longer this went on, like, the the less, like, it's it's one of those things where I didn't like it, then I really liked it, then I hated it. Because we come to find out, because it begins with Tom Cruise, like, in this, like, Russian prison and they're trying to bust him out, but he's also trying to bust out another person. And you assume this is like, oh, this is the in-media res mission. We're coming halfway through, but it's not. Apparently, he went rogue, and this prison is where he ended up, and they are trying to get him out to bring him back into the agency. And then we find out the reason he went rogue is that his wife was murdered, and he went on a revenge killing spree, and that's how he ended <laughs> up in this prison. And then we find out that Jeremy Renner... Um, that Tom Cruise went on sabbatical when his wife was murdered and Jerry Renner was this undercover minder designed to keep tabs on him. And when he was looking at Cruise and not Cruise's wife, that's when the wife was murdered. Only then at the end of the movie, we find out not only was, was Ethan Hunt framed, but his wife faked his death to create plausible deniability so he could go on a fake killing spree to get real arrested to end <laughs> up in that prison to actually break out that guy. And then when we find out Tom Cruise's wife is still alive, he still like doesn't like reconnect with her. And so as a result, Tom Cruise is the most real he's ever been in any movie because what is he playing a married man who does not want to interact with his wife 
Oh man, this is uh, I got I I I'm gonna listen to this episode and rewind that and laugh my ass off. Please do. Like <laughs> I went on such an emotional roller coaster with that whole thread going through, and it's so needlessly complicated. Well, because I remember I was like, wait, 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 wait. The third one ended with him like super happily married, right? Like, yeah. The third is basically like taken, but it's my wife, basically, like. Um, yeah, but yeah, isn't it like James Bond sort of where they feel like oh they have to have a new um Well well James Bond is is typically perpetually single and when James Bond gets yeah. married it's a big deal. But like Ethan this is more like the diehard problem where in every diehard sequel uh, they have to re-sabotage his relationship with his wife and it just gets and, until eventually they just decide to stop including her in the movies. <laughs> Right, which is too bad. Thing. You have in in the Die Hard movies uh, as they go on. You know, you have his um his son and his daughter become characters, yeah. but yeah, you don't. You could throw the the wife a bone, but yeah, they just don't. Well, like, why can't why can't Ethan Hunt have something else to fight for besides the success of his agency? Because Tom Cruise wants it just to be about Tom Cruise. I think I don't well, think he. Yeah. It has to be the Tom Cruise show, even though Mission Impossible is about teams in theory, or the TV show was at least. And to have it, which I was so happy we got Ving Rhames back, even though it's yes. really a cameo in this movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's... at the end, but it was still nice to um, to see him. I think he might have been busy doing other stuff. I'm not sure, but I mean, if you you were, you were talking earlier about how the plot of the movie could be convoluted, apparently it originally was a lot more convoluted, and. Wow when Christopher McQuarrie was brought on to work on the script, they were still, they were filming the movie. So he had a very limited set of like, of, of um, boundaries to say, okay, you cannot change the, uh, you know, we already built these sets. And so this stuff still has to take place in these locations, but you need to sort of streamline the plot here. And he compared it to turning a sock inside out. <laughs> Where in this metaphor, I don't think really works, but it's still a sock, still all the same pieces, but put together in a different order. But you're, if you're turning a sock inside out, it's still the same sock. And yeah, I guess. I wouldn't say it's in a different order. Like it's the outside. It'll, is it'll in, feel the, different when you put it on your foot. I think, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a better way to put that. But, uh, oh, you know. So speaking of those like set pieces and, and and fights, I guess that that's why I guess that that makes the the fight in the automated car garage make a little bit more sense, and and this is again one of those places where Brad Bird's sense of space and momentum really pays off as we have those cars on those lifts constantly moving around, and you know the characters Tom Cruise and villain having to deal with it. But you know what rang absolutely false to me is that when when Tom Cruise has the villain and he's tr and Tom Cruise is trying to get the Russian nuclear briefcase back so that they can disable the missile mid launch and and in the middle and like at the height of the fight when Tom Cruise gets the bad guy dead to rights the bad guy just jumps off the top of the thing with the case <laughs> what was his plan there because the case is still intact after you take your own life this doesn't like stop anything. I <laughs> All right, so I have to say that like the visual language of this moment is that it's fucking hilarious. I I I it's it's the propeller guy from Titanic. It's so funny to me. Like just seeing this body go like and then thump and then <laughs> it's just like the uh the anatomy of it just cracks me up. I think I rewound it and watched it again. It was very funny to me. But the, I have I have thoughts on the car thing. Um I was waiting for Tom Cruise to stop fighting and look at the camera and be like, for more information, go on Carvana.com. Um <laughs> also, have either of you seen the 1980 film Atlantic City? No. There's a great fight scene in a similar like car holder thing where there's many moving cars on like pallets and it's a it's a great great film i'd recommend that anyone check that out but also you know what i'm thinking a lot in this movie is how great this would be if it was late 80s jackie chan oh my gosh jackie like, chan would have so much fun in that kind of parking garage oh my god like the the range of impossibility of that like and again like late 80s early 90s era jackie chan it would just be like oh man i'm just like 
writing this movie in my head and it's like just blowing my mind. But um, but I just the the, the dude when he grabbed the case and, and it's funny, too, because I'm thinking the outcome. I'm like, maybe. The idea is that, like, it'll get the case away from him and if he gets it back. I won't get chewed out or executed when I go back to my boss and tell him I failed my mission. <laughs> well, I guess he, I guess he's not counting on Ethan Hunt stealing a car and driving a car off the edge and betting that the airbag will break his fall without landing on and crushing the briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is what happens. It's just like I just feel like he he's some sort of international criminal mastermind, insane super genius. I feel like he could come up with a better idea than I'll just jump to my death. <laughs> Which he doesn't even die because like he still twitches and blinks for like a five minutes after that. Yeah, because then the other Russian bad guy from the beginning comes back and like he like nudges him with the barrel of his gun and he's like acknowledges like, hey, my dude's not dead. Um, and then it's just kind of like after that, it's like good. Yeah, he's like, oh, I guess I guess this person I've been chasing the whole movie was telling the truth about being a spy, preventing an international incident. All is forgiven. Da, 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 let's grab a beer with Ving Rhames. Um But yeah, it's it it is like I don't know. It's this is a this is a weird one because we're talking about it, and now I'm you know the <laughs> the uh, the flaws and the wrinkles are are showing more. I I for the most part though I still like this movie. Um, but I don't know. There's a clumsiness to it that I can't really get behind. Um, it's at odds with itself. And you know, cause in every one of his movies, he has to go rogue and he has to like, you know, work with what he has, except in this one, when he goes rogue, uh, he has more resources than he's had in any other movie. Oh yeah. There's a line of dialogue. It's like the only resources we have are the things that are on this train. And I'm like, yeah, but conveniently you've got everything you need on the train. Yeah. yeah. Everything's on the train. And also everything on the train gives them access to a Lear jet and a cyber car. Yeah. Yeah. It has holograms in it. <laughs> oh, too many holograms. Yes. Far, far away, way too many holograms. Um, Interesting bit of trivia when he's rappelling around the um, the Burj Khalifa. I'm never going to forget that now. Um, that massive building in Dubai. They were filming it on 65 millimeter. Oh. And um, uh, apparently, like, you know, when you're shooting at that size, you burn through the film pretty quickly. So, like, they would have to, like, they'd have to, like, the helicopter camera would have to go change magazines or whatever they call them. And um, it was just easier to just leave Tom Cruise, like, hanging on the building because, like, you'd have to, like, you know, reset the harness and <laughs> mm -hmm. everything like that. So you would just have Tom Cruise just kind of fucking hanging off, like, the 139th floor of the largest building in the world, which is pretty fucking bonkers. Yeah, and, and it, it is one of those things, like, I, I do have to give him credit for, for doing his own stunts. And, like, I feel like the only thing that's going to stop these movies from being made is one day he's going to become impossible to ensure and he yeah. won't do these movies if they won't let him do his stunts due to his ego or something. Oh yeah. No, he's, it's a, uh, it's funny. Cause like the, the stunts are, you know, very bold and daring and stuff like that. And I guess I'm just going to cite Jackie Chan again. Is that like the thing with stunts is that like, it's a difference between evil Knievel and Robbie Knievel is that like, even though, you know, he's going to make this, he's going to do this like death defying jump. You're like 90% sure he's going to make it. Whereas like with when Jackie Chan or someone does a stunt, you're like, oh, he could fucking miss or he did miss. And we're going to see the outtake in the, you know, opening and then the closing credits. Right. Is that like, yeah, he's doing some pretty, you know, pretty cool, intense shit. But like. It's it, and even though it's like high stakes and stuff, it still feels kind of safe, you know. In in a sense, and I think I think that's also in part because we sort of expect a certain amount of digital trickery in any of these scenes. Yeah, that too. Is that like, I don't know, when you when you see someone like, you know, ride a dirt bike off a helicopter onto a train, it's that like. Where, you, here's the you, cut. You we want to find where the cut is. Yeah, you feel a sense of danger, you know. There's an immediacy to it where I think it's the it's also just like the method of presentation is that you, they talk you through it then you see it so it's not as exciting 
Oh, and I've got one other one other observation, and this is is that in when Tom Cruise is busted out of the prison in the beginning of this movie, there's this shot where he's like walking down the, the corridor and like checking over his shoulder. Tom Cruise has never looked more like Ben Stiller impersonating Tom Cruise than at that <laughs> moment. <laughs> Tom, oh Ben Stiller, I love it. There's also like a moment too where he's in the prison and he's like looking at the camera, making like hand motions, like. Visit, like obviously communicating with someone <laughs> don't you think another prisoner would be like okay this guy's a snitch or a cop or undercover or something because that's like <laughs> right like <laughs> well there is that one big guy who looks like he's about to beat beat him up when, when he lets him out of the cell but then he kind of gestures to the riot and the guy's happy to join the riot yeah it's like doing a drug deal with a guy who can see <gasps> like, the, the police badge under his shirt you know what i mean like it's it, it's really weird because like top Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt gets the shit beat out of him and you do it at various moments and you do feel it. And yet Tom Cruise feels indestructible. And I think those things, those things uh, that creates friction and that friction is, is what we're seeing and is sometimes making us find it hard to get invested in the movie. Right. Like, um, you know, you know, like in between takes, he's like doing push ups and like jumping up and down and being like, all right, let's fucking do this. You know, um, <laughs> he's an interesting character, Tom Cruise. You know, he's a very talented actor and he's he's good at being a fucking movie star. You know, like he's not like the intense artiste and he's not just an action action dude, you know. Um, and this is like such an interesting franchise because it's like a little bit of both. It's like achieves some dramatic agency, but it's also a big fucking rock'em sock'em globe trotting, you know, action blockbuster. It's a it's a tough nut to crack, I tell you what. It is, and I think he's one of the last movie stars around. I mean, because you don't like capital M Capital M movie star, because you don't see people there it seems like, you know, they don't care about who is starring in the movie oh we gotta see the new tom cruise you have to see the new you know whatever it is like it's he's always like in front of the promotion for everything for his movies he makes every movie seem like a personal project he does all the talk show circuit stuff very well he's um you know works really hard at the part of selling the movie after it comes out and i'm a little surprised we haven't seen tom cruise direct a movie i thought we would have seen that by now yeah, interesting enough, right? It's it's like obligatory almost every it seems, time. Yeah, it seems like everyone makes that move at some point, even though if it's only one feature they do, you seem. Incredibly I can only assume it, since he hasn't done it by now, it is just that is just truly not an ambition he has. Right, he does produce a lot of his stuff, and uh, that's you know more than enough him starring and producing all that stuff. All right, so I mean, as far as um what we think about you know do we have a sequel yes or sequel no to mission impossible ghost protocol i think i would give it a sequel yes i like that it's overall more fun i mean yeah the plot's kind of convoluted but that's part of the mission impossible movies um the sequence where he's climbing the the side of the uh burj khalifa is i just think as someone that's scared of heights like myself i just find that an extraordinary sequence um yeah some of it is is a little sloppy and then the movie can be a bit overstuffed but i think overall this one is uh such a good contrast i think to the to the third one it's it kind of stands on its own it kind of says hey each mission impossible movie is going to be an, an event where the stunts get bigger and bigger and bigger it does sort of put its stamp on what the movies are like uh, going forward like you were saying thresher so i would say sequel yes um alex uh, yeah, there's, like you said, it's a little convoluted and a little bloated at times, but it's a very enjoyable movie to watch. It's very entertaining. Um, it's It might seem odd that I'm giving it a sequel. Yes, because we did kind of trash it. We were a little rough, but um, <laughs> there there is something working here. Um, it's very watchable and entertaining. And um, yeah, like, like I was saying earlier, to reiterate, it's uh, it does a little bit of both. It's got, you know, some... It's got its action blockbuster credentials in order, but it's also got some dramatic agency as well. Um, you know, I think a little clarity on the story might be a little bit better, develop some characters a little more, maybe 
drop two out of five villains and stick with a good trio. But, you know, whatever. Sequel, yes, though. I'm going to give this a very marginal sequel no. Despite the fact that the runtime is well over two hours, there's just not enough movie here. The only thing worth watching is the action scenes, and everything else is just dead weight. I find the techno fetishism unbearable. <laughs> um, despite and despite really good performances from Tom Cruise and Simon Pegg and Paula Patton, they are acting their socks off in this. But it's it's just like not enough. You can and, and as much as I respect Brad Bird and love what he did with the action in this film, you just don't need to see this. If you if you don't see this movie, you are are regrettably you are not missing anything right well um there you go so move on to what you're watching i was watched a documentary i was looking forward to and then when i saw it like it had some problems that were so bizarre it kind of i focused on those more than the the content of the documentary even though i think the content it is overall good. It's just how it's presented. Um, I This one is called uh, Who Done It? The Clue documentary about the Clue mm-hmm. movie. Oh, cool. And, you finally um, learn who done it? Well, it, it, does really go, it, it goes into the uh, fourth ending, which was filmed, but not. Um, I don't think the footage survives, in which the butler killed everyone. <laughs> <laughs> which, which sounds a lot more interesting than... Um, <laughs> I mean, that's one thing I did like is over the end credits, there is not a novel exactly, but sort of like a, a, a young adult sort of adaptation of the film. And that includes that ending and that and that version of it. And some pictures exist from that ending. But yeah. Uh, but anyhow, you know, it's a movie based on the board game and it took a bit of time to get to the screen and you had some last minute castings. But like a lot of the cast is um, there. Some of the cast is dead now, so they can't interview those people. And. Yeah, a lot of them were murdered. That well, yes, of course. And when you're murdered, you can't come back from that. But no, it um, with the documentary, part of what you see is the director of the documentary makes himself a character in the documentary, which I think is a a risky move because unless maybe like you're Michael Moore or something, it's really difficult to get that to work. Yeah, there's only a few people I can pull that off, and um, Michael Moore's one of them. I can't really think of any others, actually. <laughs> Russ McElwee? Maybe. I mean, it, it just almost feels like padding, almost, because it's just several sequences of him in the car. I mean, like, and who are we talking to next? Oh, it's this person. Oh, I tried to get this person, but I had COVID, so I couldn't interview them. And then he shrugs <laughs> to the camera. I mean, it's a lot of... Ah! Stuff like that that sort of doesn't entirely work. But, I mean, the people he does interview, I think you get good stories, certainly. Some of it is just, you know, vintage footage because the actors, uh, you know, either weren't available or they're dead or or so forth. Uh, But it uses some old pictures and old video clips. And to make it look better, um, it looks like he did some sort of upscaling on it, which makes some of them look like MS Paint or something. (laughs) It's this really weird effect that just doesn't work at all and i can see if you have older pictures and you want to save how things are like you want it to look better you can do upscaling and not have it look bad or or sometimes maybe just show the picture the clip smaller so it doesn't take up the whole screen but just throughout it was just such a distracting effect that um i don't think i've seen it done to that level in a documentary before and i think that was sort of a mistake with it but if you like the clue movie you know there's a lot of good stories in here and um good stuff going on that if it's worth it if you like the um the topic i just think some of the presentation stuff i just found kind of annoying and it is on what oh it is it is so fascinating that there there have been attempts to make board games into movies and and i think as far as i know um Clue was the first, and it's a legitimately good movie. Yes, and no one's ever, no one's been able to duplicate that. <laughs> right. Um, this documentary is called "Who Done It?" The Clue documentary. Uh, you can see it on the streaming app uh, Screenbox, or it's available to um, to rent or purchase um, through, you know, a lot of different 
platforms uh, on digital, and I guess they also did like a, a physical uh, Blu-ray version if you're interested in that. Oh, um, released by uh, Vinegar Syndrome. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And this um, this director has a few other um, movies in the the works. So that's um, you know he he'll be doing more documentaries. One of which is one about the movie Midnight Madness, and then he's doing one about comfort films of the seventies, eighties, and nineties. So nice. curious to see what what he does next. Um, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? Uh, so I dove back into a uh, camp classic, something I hadn't seen. I think the last time I actually straight up saw this movie, I was probably in my middle teens. Um, but I watched the camp classic The X from Outer Space, which is a nice. movie. It's Yeah, it's directed by uh, Nazui Nihonmatsu. Uh, and you you know this kaiju whether you know it or not, because the only reason this film is typically remembered is for having Guila, uh, the goofiest looking kaiju you've ever seen. It's it's often referred to as the space chicken, and that's a pretty accurate description of what this kaiju is. <laughs> Do you um know the background behind the name? Uh, no, I assume it's a pun. So, I... I believe I'm remembering this accurately, but I think it's featured in the trailer for the film is that they got some like Japanese school kids to come up with the name for the monster of the movie. And it was part of the promotional thing. And they came up with something like chicken monster or something like that. <laughs> and like, it might not be entirely accurate, but there is some promotional push where it shows like school kids and they have something to do with the naming of the film. Yeah. I will, ha- I will have to look into that, but yeah. And and what struck me, you know, seeing this film as an adult and having seen a lot more cinema from around the world, what strikes me is this is a deathly serious movie that deals with a lot of, like, futurism and, and, and presents an overall optimistic version of the future where the international community can cooperate to explore outer space and expand the human sphere of knowledge uh, and experience. And into the middle of that optimistic story comes this goofy space chicken <laughs> that our highly competent astronaut heroes have to deal with. And so it is straight. It is a movie in a sense at odds with itself, but as a result, there is no other movie like this. Like it really, it really is worth a watch despite the goofiness of the monster. And if we ever want to do this as a film series, it does have a pseudo sequel uh, hmm. Guilala returned in the Revenge of Monster X Attack the G8 Summit, which was a Japanese kaiju political <laughs> satire from the late 2000s, which is a delight. Uh, so we, we, I don't know, we maybe we'll keep that in our pocket for a future series. But I would definitely say check out the X from Outer Space if you're a fan of kaiju, if you're a fan of futurism, if you just want to see what the goofiest kaiju ever made actually looks and acts like. <laughs> Yeah, this is it's a pretty good movie. I remember I haven't seen it in a few years, but um, it was part it was released in the um, uh, the Eclipse series of Japanese um, of Nikat uh, one certain studio I think Nikatsu um, horror and sci-fi. It was like this and this other great movie called Goke, the Body Snatcher from Hell, and the Living Skeleton, and uh, I think there's one more. Oh, Genocide is another one. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's in great the Criterion film. collection. Yeah, as part of the uh, clip series that they put out. Yeah. Nice. Um, Alex, what have you been watching? I watched for the first time. I've been meaning to do this one for a long-ass time. And for whatever reason, I'm on a Michael Crichton movie <gasps> adaptation and or directed by a kick. So I watched for the first time The Andromeda Strain. Mm. Oh. Have either of you seen this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is like it is like a one of the most like soberly made um like outbreak movies of like oh this thing's gonna kill everyone and we have to contain it but it's like so methodical and procedural and detail oriented and it's like it's Michael Crichton it feels like Michael Crichton being is like channeling his like medical experience 
like I like the most like obviously like um like this is like this is like so detail oriented like a printer mishap is nearly like a huge plot point is a printer mishap is respo- nearly responsible for like the end of mankind. <laughs> It's like a paper jam nearly causes like the uh, human apocalypse. Um, but yeah, fascinating movie. I was, I really like, it's very slow moving, but it's like the frequency, that's the frequency you want it to be on because it's about like how torturous, like looking, being in a lab and staring at a screen can be right. Um, like how obnoxious the details are in, in doing an operation or, or, or handling an experiment or something like that. Um, fascinating film. Uh, really, really interesting. And it's interesting because um, Michael Crichton's range is is very is is really uh, really compelling. Um, if you watch something like like Westworld or Coma, um, which is a really I think good underrated paranoia, um, like you know psychological paranoia movie. It's a it's a it's a wild it's wild it's wild. Wild's not the right word because it's not very wild, but it's conceptually wild. I would say. Um, well, it, yeah, first time watching, you- I really liked it. It shows you how great just like a real competent workman director like Robert Wise can be and like his how his filmography can encompass West Side Story, Star Trek The Motion Picture and Andromeda Strain, three very different movies. And they're all good in their own way. Most the motion picture less so, but it's still competently directed. And he also does some pretty like bold shit, too. Like there's a lot of like weird split screen stuff throughout, like. Um, some weird freeze frame tricks, like a simple, but like entirely effective. Um, or like, uh, you know, just like using the negative of, you know, a, a sequence instead of, uh, you know, the regular, you know, positive, you know, um, projection. It's a, a, he does some like, you know, pretty bold stuff. Not like a lot of movies were, you know, doing split screen stuff, unless you're Brian De Palma in 1971. Um, and yeah, just very committed to its premise, but it's uh, ultimately effective, I think, and very, very compelling. So one thing I noticed with uh, Michael Crichton is it seems like there's always a part in his books or his movies where it's like, I did all this research for this topic, and now I'm going to spit the research back at, back at you, you know, really didactic. Right. Do you think the Andromeda strain does a good job with that? or It does a good job with it because like, There'll be like some medical jargon back and forth, and like it helps to have some requisite knowledge. Like you know, I just have like, you know, I just took like bio like a couple like a year and a half ago. So like I hear something like, you know, myelinated sheath or neural misfire, and I'm like, oh well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that I get, I get that. Like I don't get it, but I, I see the direction it's going in. But even if I didn't have that knowledge. I think it would work out because it's delivered in a very like casual way. Like the by the, like the biological intrigue of this is corollary to like the blue collar space guys and an alien, I guess like it's there, but it's not like, look how there it is. You know, it's not like overdoing it, I guess. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but, um, but it's, uh, there, there is. It is a very medical sciency story and script, um, but it doesn't feel like overly overwrought or anything like that. I guess. And you know, they did a, a mini series of this not that long ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Was it pre? Uh, was it around COVID when COVID? Started? I, I, I think so. Yeah, Ridley Scott was a producer on it. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I just recall the uh, commercials for it. I, I, he's my favorite grumpy old man. <laughs> yes. And in an interview, as he gets older, he just gets grumpier and grumpier. It's just so funny too. I, I, I my, my greatest, uh, I, I have, I, I dread and fantasize that I'll have the opportunity to interview Ridley Scott. Ooh, that would be quite something. Will yeah. It, I, will it be Ridley Scott or will it be the Ridley Scott replicant? How do you know? I know. Yeah. I just have to ask him what he does about the tortoise. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm looking forward to his Napoleon movie with Joaquin yeah. Phoenix. That looks great. That's another one too. I mean, this guy—you can't slow him down. I mean, like, isn't Napoleon one of those like notorious like stories that like everyone's tried to do on film but it fails? I, I, like, I mean, there's been different movies so. of it, but you know, Stanley Kubrick tried to do one that would have starred Jack Nicholson. 
and then I think it might have been like a budget thing, but he took a lot of what would have been a Napoleon and just did it as very London. We're going to conquer the empire, like it or not there, buckaroo. Right. I mean, I still like the joke and Get Shorty that Danny DeVito stars yeah. as Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, that was another one. Another Napoleon reference. After me, the deluge. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is Waterloo good? I've never seen Waterloo. I just think of the ABBA song. I don't know. There's so many. It, it would that'd be a good project to look at the different Napoleon oh, things. It's, it's just directed by Sergei Bondarchuk, who did the 1965 War and Peace, which is a fucking masterpiece. That's a great movie, mm-hmm. War and Peace. Yeah. It's just. Oh, I made a mistake. That is not a. That is not a Napoleon quote. That was a uh, King Louis the Fifteenth. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Well, we got a sequel scene here, don't we? Ah, yes, indeed we do. This is uh, this is when the plot gets extra thick shortly after Jeremy Renner is introduced, where it's Ethan Hunt has finally been extracted and is in a car with analysts, Jeremy Renner's analyst, and also the director of the uh, MI5. <laughs> who's, who's now explained, who's explaining that it's ghost protocol time. Spooky. And we have two characters here. Uh, uh, no, we've Three. got uh, we've got the secretary, we've got Hunt, and we've got Brant. Excuse me, we do have Hunt. Um, can I do the I secretary? I last time, so I'll let y'all go. I'll do the secretary, I guess. Um, let's see. I shall be. Let's see. He's got the juicy lines. <laughs> so, Matt, you're the secretary. I <gasps> shall be. Eth. Hunt. Okay, I guess Wait. I'll do Brand. I'll do Brand and the dis Okay. Yep, I'll do the stage directions. Yeah. Great. The president has initiated ghost protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. So what happens now? Now I've been ordered to take you back to Washington, where the DOD will label you as a rogue extremist and hang the Kremlin bombing on you and your team. Unless you were to escape somewhere between here and the airport, having assaulted Mr. Brandt and me. Sir? You would then illegally scrounge whatever material you could from a backup supply cache that I've overlooked. The same cache where your team are waiting for further orders. Sir, you may want to... You will then disappear in this conversation never having taken place. Your intentions would be unclear, but if any one of your team is caught or killed... It will be branded terrorist out to incite global nuclear war. Handing Ethan a USB drive. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. When I'm waiting, I don't want to do it. Yeah, that's when their car gets shot up by somebody. Uh, And I gotta, and and once again, I have to say, what happens if they don't choose to accept it? Yeah. I want to see that movie. Yeah, yeah. I want to see, you know, Ethan Hunt, you know takes out the garbage and feeds the dogs after not accepting a mission. <laughs> I mean, that would be quite a way to shake things up as he gets the big briefing like he always does in the movies and he just says no. <laughs> yeah, and then that like, mission is goes it... south and he has to save everyone's bacon. That would be fun. It's like, I equated it to like when I like when they try to call me into work, you know? I'm always like, uh, how bad do you need me? I'm all, I throw out like everything that I'm doing that day. I'm like, well, I have to go to the store, and I got a doctor's mm. appointment, and I got some homework. Like, you know, I would just love Ethan Hunter to say, like, you know, I got a lot of shit to do. You know, right? Uh, and Costco. It there's some like meme I think going around where it was a text message chain, and like the boss is texting the um. The worker like, oh, gee, we're pretty light in the uh, at the restaurant today, and the coworker is like, sucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> yep. it's like, what does it have to do with me? So, because yeah, they you always know, I... try to make it seem like we really need you. They make it seem, you know, desperate that they need you and you do it. But then every time they make it seem like it's an emergency, and it's like when everything is an emergency, nothing really is. Yeah. And in those kind of jobs where the you know, the pay, if it's not minimum wage, it's sort of close to it. And it, it jobs that just kind of have a lot of um, turnover and stuff. Like, you're going to be short-staffed almost every day. Yeah. 
Um, the the like the co the go word we use is nuclear. It's like, oh. are, are we gonna go full nuclear if I don't come? And it's like, yes. And it's like, I will, I shall come then. Right, right. Okay. So yeah, the next uh, as you're doing in the chat, Thresher. Yeah, we should um, announce the next series. I think we announced it last time, but it's been so long since we've recorded one of these. A lot of us have come down with COVID. <laughs> There's a big strain going around and everything. Um, oh, we're going to yeah. be looking at the Fletch movies. So you have, uh, yeah. you have Fletch, you have Fletch Lives, and then there's the new one, Confess Fletch, with um, John Hamm. John Hamm, right? And they, I mean, that has been a third Fletch movie has been in the works for a while. So I was kind of surprised to see it. It came out, I think, in theaters really briefly, and then almost immediately hit video. So I, they were contracted to to write a, a follow up to it. Whether that actually happens, I don't know. But it's um, <laughs> but yeah, Fletch is is uh, one of those I think I've been meaning to do on the show, and I'm not sure why. I I kept on not I, doing it. Fletch is fun to say. It is. I think we've been talking about this since Beverly Hills Cop back in the olden times. Shit. Yes, and in fact, at one point I was going to do the. Uh, the Fletch movies when uh, sequel cast was um, had Sabrina as a co-host and that was oh, on yes. uh, Cascadia FM and it was even announced as such that Fletch was going to happen and then um, basically that radio station uh, closed down and it kind of uh, the show returned to its natural state let's say so yeah with the think back to the future is what we came back with. But we did that. Yeah, sketch. I guess that's cool. Sketch. So, yeah, I think Fletch will be something different. There's a whole lot of books and, and so forth, <gasps> which is kind of surprising when I first learned that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just Chevy Chase. He doesn't have that many franchises. We did Caddyshack years ago, but it's like Caddyshack and Fletch were his big ones. Vacation, um, I guess. Oh, yep, that's vacation. true. We've also done vacation. Um, so good call. Good call. But yeah. But it wasn't like yeah, the franchises. This will be exciting. Oh, OK. Before, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're comedies, but they're also a, a murder mystery with. Um, and sometimes the mystery is a you know, legitimate mystery. It's twist and turns. And sometimes it's just more of a, a thing to hang jokes on. So he's a private eye, right? Um, yeah. I mean, he's a journalist first, but yeah. Oh, okay. He's yeah, he's also a private eye. I, I love shit like it's that. One, one of those characters where their job isn't solving mysteries, but they keep solving mysteries. <laughs> yes, he sort of somewhat begrudgingly does stuff, and the um, he wears a lot of, or at least the Chevy Chase version of him wears a lot of disguises. Nice. So, and character voices. Yes, and fake teeth, and yeah, all that stuff. So. <laughs> Should be interesting. Um, we should do the episodes in disguise, and the listeners have to guess which one is really us. <laughs> it yeah, sounds like beard. Right. Okay, great. So um, you can check out the website, sequelcast2.com. Uh, you can follow me on um, on Twitter. I'm not going to call it X. I hate that. Um, no one should. M-A-T-W-B-T. Um, Thrasher. Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, wt2art. Uh, also, our theme song is written and performed by Mark with the C. You can check his stuff out at markwiththec.com. And Alex, you can find me on the Twitter at crabnebula1914. And if you drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project, there is one minute of preview footage from my in-production short film, Incubate. I will uh-huh. say it's science fiction. Okay. Exciting science fiction. And um, you, you're still submitting your, your first film to different uh, film festivals, or that's about? Um, I'm, I'm running out of road because it's been over a year. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I got into the Paris Film Awards uh, for my short film last year, uh, Burnt by the Sun, which will make it its 25th. Festival entry, I think. Wow, it's a lot of. The, the, 
the admissions outweigh the rejection still. So I, I'll I'll say it's a I'll say it's a moderate success. Certainly, great. Okay, so for sequel cast two, uh, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. This is Waterloo. I couldn't escape if I wanted to. <laughs> Saying, I got my field agent certification. Mamma mia, here I go again. My, my, the lyrics to an ABBA song. And that means we're going to go get ice cream after saving the world. Ice cream and a beer. Ice cream and a beer with Ving Rames. Yes. That sounds like a good time. Yeah.